Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Steve McCrone. He is an ex-officer in the New Zealand Army, a bomb disposal expert. He is the head of Asia Pacific for AGLX, which is a strategy and organizational development company. He's also the co-author uh, of a chapter in the latest Kinevin at, at 21 book. Um, and for those not familiar with that, Kinevin is a particular framework um, for, uh, I suppose, understanding different domains of, of order and disorder within, the, within the, the systems and the environments that we find ourselves in. Uh, Steve, uh, welcome to the show. Kia ora Richard. Welcome to New Zealand. <laughs> what was that you just said? I said kia ora koutou. It's, uh, kia ora koutou. Hello. That's uh, yeah. Maori, is it? That's, that's right, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, kia ora koutou. <laughs> 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 Cheers. Cheers, yes. Uh, okay, so we would definitely get into all of the complexity piece, and I'm fascinated to get your insights on how we apply complexity thinking uh, to the realm of, of strategy, especially. That's perhaps something we don't um, hear so much about. Um, but before we get to that, you know, New Zealand Army bomb disposal expert. Um, yeah, that's, uh, tell, tell us a little bit of your backstory and how you, how you came to be uh, doing that in the world. Um. Yeah, really just uh, for me, I was a young man. I just finished my management degree uh, at Otago University. Um, I actually ran into a guy who was a couple of years older than me and was telling me about his first job as a uh, logistics manager in a supermarket. Um, and he thought it was a pretty good job and it was um, you know, reasonably well paid and all of that stuff for a young guy. But I just thought, man, that sounds so boring, like seriously. Uh, I don't want to do that. So I joined the army and, you know, when I was there, we sort of had a look around um, during my officer training and I saw what the um, ammunition technical guys were doing and thought, man, that really does look interesting. You know, blowing things up for a living uh, and making things not blow up for a living looks like fun for a young man. So that's, that's what I did. It was no more kind of thought to it than that. You know, what's the most interesting thing I can do? And I really still do. You know, I take that philosophy i guess in a lot of my work nowadays too so what's the most interesting thing we can be doing right now mm. yeah and what was your hairiest moment as a you still got both arms both legs by the yeah um yeah you do you kind of um you don't i mean for me i didn't you know deploy uh in a, in a military sense you know to a war zone and some of my colleagues have had some seriously hairy moments in the likes of afghanistan and iraq you know i'd, I'd left before that started but you do find a lot of circumstances where if you get it wrong, you're going to die. And it's kind of binary. So you either get it right and live or you get it wrong and die. So you kind of do your planning and you do your, you know, what they call a military appreciation. You have a team around you that are, you know, helping you with your thinking and, and that sort of stuff. But when you get to an unexploded device or something, then, you know, you've got to go through a process of thinking and acting in order to make sure that you're minimizing the risk. So it's not really till after that that you think, man, that could have gone really badly if I had done this or I hadn't noticed that. So, you know, you have kind of a number of these things, but the things that actually end up hurting or killing people aren't the big hairy moments, right? It's small lapses of concentration in a time where, you know, you maybe you, you were tired, you weren't paying attention, you wanted to, you know, go and have lunch or something, right? That's really what hurts people in this industry and in a lot of others. So when, you know, after I finished uh, in the army, I took a, like a serious interest in health and safety for that reason. So when you look back, you say, actually, the hairy moments weren't the big, scary bombs. You had all of the team and the training and the attention. The hairy moments were the small things we did when we really weren't paying attention, if that makes sense. Mm. And so what so I had did any of that? And what uh yeah, I guess what did you take away from that then? Like what have what have you carried it forward as as lessons? Well, interestingly, um it wasn't really till I met Dave that I found the language to kind of describe um uh Dave Snowden, who's yeah. on your podcast, uh, yeah. to describe um, I guess the, the role of heuristics in decision making. So we relied very heavily on heuristics, um, mostly so like because rules of thumb, mate. Yeah, r rules of thumb, or, or um, yeah, yeah, just you know, small phrases that you have in the back of your mind that will guide your decision making in real time. 
So, you know, one of them used to be do your thinking before you put the bomb suit on, which means, you know, as soon as you've got the bomb suit on, you're thinking about, um, you know, it's heavy. So it's actually quite physically constraining, which actually becomes mentally constraining. And then you can't think broadly. You can't think all you're thinking about is walking up and doing a job. Um, whereas if you haven't got the bomb set on, you can think more holistically. Do I actually need to walk up and do the job? Is there something I can do with a robot? Is there something I can do, um, you know, uh, at the end of a string that I can, I can make it safer or, or, or clear the area or do something else? So, you know, that was a real heuristic that really guided your kind of decision making or guided the way you, you um, approached these types of problems. Um, you know, minimize time over target. So don't walk up to a device and then try and work out what to do. Have something ready to go so that when you're there, you're minimizing the amount of time you're spending in the danger zone. You know, those types mm. of things. And they, they don't tell you what to do. They just guide the way you act, the way you think, the way you make decisions. So we use a lot of those types of heuristics um, right. in the team. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds to me like, you know, they became like explicit, right? Like you talked about them and that it became things that you, you, you referred to, right? You co- kind of consciously were aware of them. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And when you're debriefing, you can talk about them explicitly uh, in that sense as well. So you can say, you know, did you minimize time over target? What more could we have done? What would we do differently? But with that goal in mind or that, you know, um, heuristic in the back of your mind. Um, and it makes for a, an easier conversation with your peers if you've all got the same shared understanding of, you know, what's really important. Yeah. Now that's interesting. And, I, and as I reflect on, you know, my experience in, in businesses is, is, you know, sometimes these rules of thumb and thumb, but we don't really consciously talk about them so much. It's not like, you know, what we, we I, I very rarely hear people ask the question, well, what are the set of heuristics that we tend to use around here? Like what, what, are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we certainly, we never, certainly never used that phrase or had that discussion. They were just things that we would, we would mm-hmm. table in order to facilitate a, a debrief. Um, and we still, I mean, that's one thing that the role of heuristics and decision-making is one thing that I've carried through to our strategy work because it's just as important in organizational strategy. Um, you know, and when we start talking about a sense of direction and a sense of movement, then it's the heuristics that guide those decisions. You know, the, the thing that you end up doing or the, the um, you know, big strategic interventions, they can, they can develop from those. But once you're actually, um, you know, uh, into a strategic move, then you should be guided by those. It should be like guardrails around your thinking or guardrails around your decision making. Right. That's interesting. And is that is so? Does that map on to what you talk about in your chapter? You, know, you talk about direction, tempo, and constraints. Is is is, is that a right? A- absolutely. Yeah. 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 So we talk about you know what's the sense of direction? Um, uh, how are we going to can it, how are we going to move? Or what I call it the why um, of um, purpose and the why of movement. Um, and then you say, okay, how can we constrain that movement so that we're moving in the right direction at the right tempo? Because movement unconstrained slips into chaos. Mm. Right? So you can have a massive waste of resources and time. And you see that a lot in um, you know, small startups that are constantly pivoting. Right? It's unconstrained movement. Actually, you know, at some point, they've got to constrain that to the point where they're actually starting to um, exploit opportunities to create value. Otherwise, they're just moving around in, in, the, in the complex domain effectively um, and not really creating anything. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's a good time to kind of zoom out because uh, <laughs> you just use the term there, complex domain, which might yes, be nothing to some people. And, um, you know, we've sort of, and it's great to sort of start to touch into your, your ideas around strategy. So maybe we should start like big picture, like how do people tend to think about strategy? Yes. And then like, how do you think of, of about strategy with this awareness of complexity theory and the work of Dave Snowden that we've mentioned, you know, maybe sort of paint those, those, that's so, the big picture uh, level and then dive in. I'll tell you the story about how I came to meet Dave and cause that's kind of the start. Yeah. So I was, um, I left the army. Um, I was 28 years old. So I was, um, you know, reasonably sort of young and naive. Um, I'd had a management degree. Um, that I gained from a target university in the early uh, 1990s. And, you know, it was a very, um, the 1990s certainly was a time when um, uh, what we call systems dynamics, which I'll explain in a moment, was very pervasive. 
And this is this idea of, you know, really linear, where are we now? Where do we want to be? How do we get there type of thinking? Um, you know, the organization as a machine, this type of um, paradigm. And we, I joined a, a management consultancy, had a various roles and joined a management consultancy um, who were, or self-described as experts in strategy. And I always sort of thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, I know a lot of military people that think they're experts in strategy as well. And it seemed to me there wasn't a lot of um, sort of commonality in their thinking. So I started asking some sort of naive or some sort of fundamental questions. And the first one is, you know, what is strategy? Now, I'm not going to go into that now, but it's a pretty ill-defined term. Um, I uh, had upon the Mintzberg definition, which is in the book, if you want to look it up fairly um, commonly used. But then I would say, okay, what makes you good at strategy and someone else bad at strategy? That's a good question. Um, and really what I wasn't getting was any real answers to this. So we would be doing these strategic plans for organizations. And I've got, I'm looking at my, we've got, we, you'd produce like a spiral bound um, plan that was maybe 50 to 100 pages long. Um, it was full of, um, you know, all sorts of facts and figures and intent and, and you know, great ideas. And, and I come to call those bedtime stories in that they had, um, uh, a really interesting plot, a happy ending. There were heroes and villains along the way, but they really didn't um, reflect anything that was true in the real world. And the the, the I'm sure um, there's a few people smoking on both sides of the yeah, equation, totally. right? Consultants, no, people who've hired consultants, they're knowing not. No, I've never had anyone say that's not true. My strategy is this, you know, perfect representation of a fictitious future. Um, so. The, the test for that as a consultant, right, we're here to make money and do strategy and stuff, is you'd give them the spiral-bound uh, strategic plan and, a, and an invoice. They'd pay the invoice. You'd go back three, six months later and say, how, how did the strategy work out? And the uh, executive would be physically looking for this thing, and they'd find it in the bottom drawer. They'd pull it out. And you know it's only the second time they've ever opened it, right? And the board of directors have only read the intro, the uh, executive summary, and the financials at the back. So no one had really used that to guide anything um, in terms of a strategic decision. And then you'd say, so, you know, how's it, how's it, how's it kind of panning out? And they say, oh, well, actually, um, this has changed. You know, this customer's come on. This um, major account's left. This opportunity's opened up. This thing that we thought was going to work just died, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff happened that's disrupted our strategy. And the beauty of that as a consultant is you can say, well, you know, what about we do it again? Let's do a new one. Let's do a refresh. <laughs> and they would go, yeah, okay, right? You're a good guy. We quite enjoyed the process. And you go through this whole sort of iteration again, and it seemed to me that, that I was conspiring with my clients to create something that was failing. And neither of us, well, I say neither of us could see it. I could see it. And then I said, actually, do I want to spend the rest of my life um, – you know, helping people do something that is of absolutely limited value, like wasting their time, wasting their resources. You know, can I get out of bed in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and say, like you could, you know, when you was, when you was um, a military officer, you could look at yourself in the mirror and say, actually, I'm making the world a safer, better place, you know, getting rid of this horrible stuff. Um, so I thought, actually, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. This is crazy. What is it about the real world that's different to how traditional management theory tells me it should work? And I asked that question to a lot of people, couldn't really get an answer. Um, I started coming up with some ideas and drawing funny diagrams about how systems work. And then I come across some very early work um, from Dave Snowden around um, Kinevin and Constraint. And I thought, wait a minute, here's a guy who is like well ahead of me in terms of the thinking, in terms of the theory, in terms of the expression of that. Um, so I started reading it up. I actually um, went to London and met with Dave when, you know, I don't know if you remember back in the old days when you could travel around the world relatively freely. <laughs> right. um, I met him at Paddington. He was coming from somewhere, going to somewhere else. Um, we had a, like a brief chat. Uh, I went and did a Kinevin Foundations course and really started to bring that, um, what we now call anthro-complexity work into strategy and then thinking actually there's a better way to do this. Okay, so that's the intro. <laughs> and, and, and what it comes down to is this, right? I'm going to draw a picture. So yeah, yeah. typically, you can see that okay? 
I can see that. Okay. So okay, for okay. those just listening, we've got a, a y-axis and x-axis so far. X, y-axis, pretty basic. So in yeah. the uh, bottom left-hand corner is time zero, and out to the right is, for whatever reason, three years. People would like to do three-year strategies. I did a bit of futures work back in the day, and they talk about horizons. Three years is good enough. Um, we, we generally don't time-bound. If you've got a sense of direction, you don't, put a, you don't necessarily need a time frame for that. Once you start to have goals, then time frame matters. So then you say, this is where we are. And most organizations think they know where they are. And I say that quite deliberately, is that they've got a, a management reporting system. They generally pay tax unless they're a huge uh, global multinational. Um, and so they've got this reporting function that tells them, you know, financially and, and uh, you know, how many people they've got, what markets they're in, customers, et cetera. They know where they are, Right. The one thing they don't know is, you know, what do our customers really think of us? What do our staff really think of working here? Those types of things. But that's okay. So this is the start point. And generally, a start point is messy. There's things you don't like. There's um, opportunities that you uh, want to chase but haven't. There's things that are happening you you, you don't want to have happen, blah, blah, blah. So the first thing that we do is we identify, so now I'm up in the top right, our kind of future um, goal or a future um, aspirational kind of target. And, you know, people have different words for this. Some people call them, um, you know, vision statements or some people call them mission statements. But generally, to me, it becomes a um, sort of an idealized future where all of your opportunities are brought to fruition and all of your problems are solved. Okay. And as human beings, we kind of like that. We think, man, that sounds mm. really good. It's a sort of Garden of Eden approach to, to strategy. And this is, so we put a big tick here. This is a, an incredibly good place. And then the role of the consultant is to apply their genius to help you link your messy uh, current state with this idealized future. Okay. And we do that in a way where I'll just draw a straight line between the two, but sometimes it's got steps and whatever. And we can say, and year one and two, we've got these mm. milestones, et cetera, et cetera. And then we say, okay, here's your, this is the strategy we've linked. You know, this is the things we need to do. So this is change and this is time. Change over time will lead us from today to a better place. And that's effectively the, the, the kind of mental model or the way that we think about strategies. We're applying resources over time to create change. Yeah. Until day two, something unexpected happens that bumps you off the curve. Yeah. Um, and that could be anything. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people talk about uh, the disruption caused by COVID. That's not an anomaly in the real sense. There are always things happening that will disrupt your plan or your thinking. Right. Um, you know, and, and Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. And then you, you're kind of stuck. So um, what we see here is, and the beautiful thing for consulting is as soon as we see this disruption, we pile back into the client base and say, let us help you, you know, recast your strategy or reshape your curve or do whatever you like. Yeah. And then we just go through this whole process again. Let's redefine the goal, blah, blah, blah. So what we say is actually um, if you take that method, then you're trading your current certainty or relative certainty for future uncertainty. So you're always operating in the uncertain or, or idealized future, thinking in the idealized future, et cetera. So that's actually quite dangerous because oftentimes it means you're ignoring what's happening right now. Yeah. And that could be um, you know, a, a big opportunity, a shift in the market, um, dissatisfied customers, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these are things that we need to pay attention to. So what we do in strategy is we say, let's identify um, – what we call a shared understanding of success. So why are we doing this? Why would anybody care? Yeah. You know, what are we changing? What are we hoping to, um, you know, in terms of direction of travel, where are we moving? I call that a shared understanding of success. And I draw it as a cloud because it's a little bit more ambiguous. It's deliberately an amorphous statement that is, um, it's, it gives us a direction of travel, but doesn't constrain us in terms of what to do. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're working with a construction company at the moment and, you know, their, their success statement is to be um, New Zealand's leading construction company. It's very amorphous, but actually in construction, we kind of know what that means because we can put some words around it is, you know, we, 
we are invited to the table to negotiate the biggest projects. Right. Um, you know, we um, continuously run a positive um, net margin, et cetera, et cetera. So we can actually define that. But what we do to get there is not defined or, or constrained. And what we say is rather than how do we stick to the plan, the strategic question becomes, and this is, um, again, sort of Dave Snowden language, is how do we maximize the evolutionary potential of our present? And that word evolutionary is quite deliberate. Okay, so in order to maximize your potential, you uh, might place a number of small bets in areas that you wouldn't otherwise uh, look at. So these are small interventions designed to test the system. We call them safe to fail experiments or small steps that are maybe away from our current strategic direction, but still coherent with the success. Coherent means I can give you a sufficiency of evidence that um, this will move us towards success or it will um, move us forward. Okay. Now that allows you and I to disagree on what we need to do today, because you can take a small step or try something here. I can try something here. And rather than having this, um, you know, we have these prioritization matrix and these big decision-making kind of um, events where you list a thousand projects and we want to pick the top hundred is actually, we're both allowed to test our idea in real time with real people And then as long as we've got a fast feedback mechanism, we're starting to see the impact of our movement or our idea or our um, intervention on the market or on our business. And if that impact's positive, then we say, how do we amplify that? Right, right. Right. And the amplification is really important because when I look at businesses um, who say, oh, we're not innovative or we need to be more innovative, actually, if you go into the business, there's lots of small successes happening but they die of lack of oxygen because as soon as they come above the parapet, they go into a, you know, decision-making framework or they go into a bureaucratic process or they go into a... There's no room for that idea in phase three of our plan, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. We don't have the budget for that. It's not aligned with our strategy, right? So they, they die of lack of oxygen. They don't die of lack of innovation. And then people get frustrated and then they don't try new things. And then sticking to the plan becomes more important than success. Right, yeah. Uh, even if it's patently obvious that the plan's moving us in the wrong direction. And if you go back to Kinevan, then that's where we start to, to go from the uh, clear domain into chaos. Everyone sticks to the rules, follows the plan, but it's patently obvious to everyone that that's just not going to work out in the long term. Okay, so as we move forward, some of these things are, are like really successful. We can take a bigger step. We're more confident now. Okay. Some of them are, are failures, so we can learn from that. We can actually, if you're really clever, you can nudge your competition towards that as well, make it look like you are doing this, and then hopefully that they will fail uh, bigger than you. Um, <laughs> actually, in a, in a highly competitive <laughs> can, can environment. Run that complexity. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's a good strategy, right? Because if you can, I mean, this you know obviously comes from the concept of maneuver warfare. If you can get the enemy to commit their resources, then their, their number of options in the present is now limited. So if you're in a right. construction company and you can, if you can spot a tender that is, um, you know, really in favor of the client, it's going to be a really horrible piece of work. It's very unlikely to return a positive margin. It's going to take a long time. It's likely to end up in a lot of, um, you know, courtroom kind of dramas. Then not winning it takes you a strategic advantage. Right because then you've got resources to deploy into higher margin projects while your competitors are tied up with low margin work. And we've done this with construction companies in the aftermath of the Christchurch earthquake, where some of the rebuild projects were just like awful. Right. No offense to anyone listening. Okay. So what we're starting to see now is as we're doing this idea of uh, how do you maximize your evolutionary potential is we're starting to see a lot more movement in a broader uh, horizon. And now we can, what that means really is we can spot real opportunities uh, with more clarity because we're interacting with the market and it gives rise to um, sort of feedback. And if we're good at detecting and responding to that feedback, then we can amplify success and we can kind of surprise ourselves. I didn't think this would work, but it seems to be going really well. Or we thought the clients would like this, but it turns out only like a small part of it. So now we can make that into our new product or new widget. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Yeah, and what's yeah. really coming through to me now is, you know, you, the way that you've elaborated on this this term evolutionary presentment of the present, which is a bit of a tongue twister and I think goes over a lot of people's heads, is that what's coming here, coming through to me here is because I'm allowing lots of ideas to start to get a bit of traction in an organizational context, right? Like for an individual, that actually might be quite limiting and you might want to not do too many experiments. But for an organization, often we're not fully utilizing all of those resources that are available. We're not allowing people to test those ideas. We're really just filtering to a few ideas that fit with the plan that our executives at the top like the sound of. And we're, we're, we're not maximizing the evolutionary potential of the present. We're often uh, minimizing it and in sometimes sort of suffocating it, right, at some level because of the <laughs> bureaucratic structures that we have in large organizations. Absolutely right. And the, the kind of more insidious part of this is if you've got a very explicit set of goals and a very clear plan, then the filter becomes what we call a dark constraint. People will be constrained by the need to stick to the plan, or that's not how we do things around here. And they don't even know it. They don't even talk about it. So then you don't see the evolutionary potential because you've already killed those ideas, you know, in the womb. They're not even, they're not even on the table. Yeah. Right. Whereas um, oftentimes in organizations, people will express those ideas or try them out and then they kind of, they, they wither, yeah. which can be, you know, immensely frustrating. But what we're starting to see now is rather than say, you know, let's find the path, we're actually saying let's allow the path to emerge as a consequence of action, right? So now your strategic direction is, is governed by the shared understanding of success and hopefully uh, a number of principles, um, you know, that constrain you to uh, morally <laughs> uh, <laughs> positive behaviour. Um, because if they don't, right, then you end up, um, you know, uh, in this part of the world, the banking industry has just had a, uh, uh, you know, a, a major kick because they have allowed their uh, activity to contravene, you know, their principles and they've had a lot of what they call conduct risks. So, you know, selling products and services to people who shouldn't be buying them, that sort of thing. So we have to make sure that we have those types of constraints. Again, otherwise we're heading into chaos. So... As we move forward, things are working. Some things are not. We're learning all the time, learning from failure, accepting the idea that not everything can try or work. We're taking small steps. As uncertainty increases, what we say is just take smaller steps, yeah, yeah. so that you don't, you don't take a big risk of failure. So move faster, but with smaller steps or, or take a broader range of – and what we're starting to see is the emergence of the path, but also the emergence of what I call authentic strategic goals. Because now all of a sudden you've tried this little idea, it seems to resonate, you've developed some products and services in that direction, and now all of a sudden you say, actually, this should be a core part of our business. People really love this thing. It's unexpected, but let's just bring it in. And now we've, we've um, in, in Kinevan language, we've moved from the complex across to the audit domains where we can now put some structure around it. We can hire a team, we can put a budget in place, we can say, actually, I want to sell X many units of this in this market in this year, just like the old days, because we've built up that knowledge and that understanding. Yep. Right? So now as we see goals emerge, the goals are far more authentic, i.e. they weren't developed in a dark room um, in a sort of fit of desperation or... or um, With some you know, overpaid um, consultants. <laughs> Idealised thinking or overpaid consultant. Um, they resonate because the staff and the people in the team have actually helped develop the idea, so they are part of it. So this idea of, you know, we need to get buy-in is kind of nonsense. If people are acting in a way that allows these things to emerge, then buy-in is not even a – we don't even use that phrase. It's not even a thing. You know, if, if you're doing it, then you've bought in ages ago, right? That is, but that's a really- because it's supported, it's far more likely to succeed because you've got all of the knowledge that's gained from the interactions. You've seen the failures. You've knocked the rough edges off it. Now, the chances of success of that strategic intervention or that goal are far higher than they would have been if a um, shiny suit consultant had developed it in the dark room with the executive team. Yeah, and that is, I think that's a really important point because that is something I hear over and over in organizations is how do we get buy-in for this strategy? Like people aren't on board. 
you know, how do we do yeah. this cascade effectively such that we can get everybody yeah. aligned to our strategy, right? Yeah. But these are yeah, all totally. problems that emerge arguably from a fraud approach to strategy totally. in the first place. Totally. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a bomb disposal. <laughs> I don't do this very often. The equivalent of that is people say to me, oh, red wire or blue wire, you know, like in the movie. And I say to them, if it gets to the point where you've got to make a choice between a red wire and a blue wire and you're standing there with a pair of pliers, you've already failed. Right? You've failed in your planning. You've failed in your appreciation. You've failed in the way that you would approach a problem like that if it comes down to a binary. Mm. In the same way, if you uh, have a big plan or a big idea and then you've got to ask the question, oh, how do we get buy-in? Then you've actually you've already failed. Yeah. Yeah. That should <laughs> gonna, be a I consequence clip that of out. action. That's going as a clip on LinkedIn. That, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so... So what we're now starting to see is um, strategies now about movement because you can always ask that question, how do I maximize the evolutionary potential of my present? Or, you know, how can we make the best of where we are is really another way of saying mm. it. And that question is always legitimate. How do we stick to the plan actually starts to lose legitimacy in the face of something like a COVID disruption because your supply chain might be disrupted, your um, consumers and customers might be disrupted. You know, we as a business, um, you know, I applied this idea uh, on the Sunday night when I was told New Zealand's going to go into a four-week, or we didn't know it was four weeks at that point, might have even been eight weeks actually initially, lockdown as of Monday morning. So I thought, shit, how do I maximise the potential of this situation? So what I did is grabbed a mate, drove to the office, detached a two by 1.5 whiteboard from the wall, took it into my house, mounted it on the wall of my home, set up a camera and lights and thought, I'm going to be working from Zoom for the foreseeable future. How do I make this you know, good experience? How do I reach a lot of people? Then I started emailing everybody I knew. After two weeks, we'd give people two weeks to sort themselves out, saying, actually, I'm pretty good at helping people manage complexity and confusion, uh, I won't use the word chaos because luckily New Zealand didn't get to that. Would you like me to talk to you about it? And mm. I ended up doing, at this point, uh, immediately after COVID in those four weeks, I was doing three or four Zoom calls a day for audiences of 50, 100 people. Wow. Right? And then from that, we developed this idea of adaptive strategy, which is what I've effectively outlined here. Not, Not... We were already doing that, but we really condensed it and we called it survive and thrive. So how do you get through the next 18 months, two years uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a reasonably good condition? And then we were effectively, we sold that into the market. So that was a, a kind of, you know, this type of thing. And then that's become a core part of our business for the last 18 months is this survive and thrive idea, which is a, effectively just a smaller version of this for organization. Yeah. yeah. No. So we're going to take our own medicine there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can see it. And, and the other, the other question that's coming to me now is that you've got this success statement right at the top here on, and, and for those um, listening, there's a, there's a, a bubble with, you know, success statement in the top right corner, which, which people are going to heading towards to what extent, you know, to what extent do we need to challenge that as part of this process? Cause I'm thinking of no, Nokia, right. For which, which as I understood, it started out as a, Wellington boot manufacturer and at a certain point became the biggest manufacturer of mobile phones. So, That's right. you know, how do you manage that, right? Those, those, those experiments that you want to do that take you well outside of any kind of conceived successful future, but that might be your future <laughs> that might represent absolutely the evolutionary potential of your present. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's two things I'll say there. One is you can do this whole process without that. Right. Without how do you, how do you maximize yeah. the potential of your current state? I can do anything. You can really, if you were in a, a massively disrupted or a massively uh, uncertain position, you can, you can allow that success statement to emerge as a consequence of action in the now. Right. Okay. So um, it's not often that organizations have the luxury of doing that because generally the, the machine's been running for a long time before you get to this point. Okay. 
So, you know, we're working with, um, you know, uh, Gallagher Animal Management. Um, they, uh, you know, Sir William Gallagher invented the electric fence here in New Zealand, a uh, very innovative guy. So their success statement is is still involving, I won't tell you what it is, it's theirs, it's still involving animal management. Okay. Well, they're not going to move away from their core business. They're not going to move away from their core brand. They're not going to start selling used cars or Uberized funerals or whatever clever things people might think of. So some of their constraints are to do with, um, you know, will this um, allow us farmers to um, be more efficient? Will it allow them to have better animal husbandry? Will it allow them to, um, you know, be more environmentally aware and, and environmentally um, thoughtful when they're applying resources? Yeah, which yeah, is so a big business. Direction of travel. As we yeah. all know, there's plenty of sheep in New Zealand. <laughs> Less so now, actually. We're a, we're a dairying nation. Okay. Uh, nowadays, but, <laughs> no, but you, you see, and but they don't. They they sell, um, you know, all over the world. You know, so any anywhere there's pastoral farming, you'll find their products. So um, their success statement is is aligned with that. You know, it's global intent, um, but constrained by you know our our long history of animal management, and that's where you know when you um, uh, particularly read the work from Dave Snowden, you know, your past history of decision making has a massive influence on your current, um, you know, view of decisions or current um, constraint. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's very foolish. Um, Early on again in in the COVID thing, you know, uh, a lot of consultants um, (laughs) were talking about pivoting. Oh, you need to pivot. This is the time to pivot. And I, I would say, look, if you pivot away from your core strengths, if you pivot away from the things that make your organization um, strong, then as the world shifts in a post-COVID world, you'll be lost. Yeah. Right? Now's not the time to panic. Now's the time to maximize <laughs> your position. But knowing that, you know, there will be stability or relative stability at some point in the future. Yeah. So your yeah. success statement is to accommodate that. So I can, you know, quite proudly say is that, um, in the two years before COVID, when we were doing adaptive strategy with clients, none of them had to recast their strategy after COVID. This can accommodate a COVID type disruption. Right. Because the fundamental strategic question is still valid. Yeah. Whereas if you had a linear plan that focused on a distinct or a clear set of goals and intent and plan, then of course you disrupted, you know, supply chains disrupted, your staff are disrupted, your customers are disrupted, your major markets are disrupted, the types of products and services that are in demand have shifted oh, my God, we need to do a new strategy. Yeah, yeah. Actually, our guys just needed to lean into it. They've already yeah. got the way of working. So strategy is now about movement. And yeah. As long as you're moving, you're winning. If you, if you stop moving, um, you're kind of going to wither. Yeah, yeah. And I just go back to your tennis, right, direction, tempo, constraints. Um, a lot of those would have, yeah, been unaffected by covid maybe there's some slight variation but it's not like you've got to completely re- refresh your strategy yeah yeah i can I see mean, you, you change a lot of stuff it's not that's not saying we'll just keep doing the things we're doing but that change can be accommodated within an adaptive strategy that's why we call it adaptive yeah you can just shift resources into areas or experiment you know shift resources to experimentation was the first yeah. thing a lot of yeah. we had a lot of our clients do yeah you know take yeah. all that time and effort and come back and say what else could we do yeah. Yeah. So this is the big human podcast. Like what does it, what yeah. in your experience does it take of individual leaders, you know, to move to this way of thinking and behaving? Like what does it take at the um, human level? Yeah, that's a really good question. We have, um, uh, you know, as a consultancy, um, we like to, you know, work with people who really embrace this type of thinking. So what, that's one of our filters is, you know, we've got to get past that hurdle, particularly with an executive or a, or a board of directors as quickly as we can um, or not. So we sort of filter them out. You know, if you want a linear strategy, there's plenty of people who do that for you. Um, if you want, um, you know, if you want to feel, you know, the one thing that, that I'll, I'll just rub this out. The one thing that linear strategy gives us is, a feeling of control. 
I know where I am. I know where I want to be. I know what I've got to do. Now, if you know those three things, then do that. Right? You'd be a, a fool to kind of play around with it. Um, so that's kind of a filter for us. But in terms of the leadership, is two things that I look for. One is inherent frustration. Not, right. You know, like boiling anger, but saying actually we're really frustrated in uh, the fact that we have to continuously plan and budget um, and report for something that's effectively fiction or something that just doesn't work out or we're continuously changing it. And I say, well, actually, you know, let's find a way to embrace that rather than fight against it all the time. And the other one is um, we're starting to see a real, and, you know, COVID, frankly, for me and my business is, um, you know, they say chaos, chaos isn't an abyss, chaos is a ladder, right? You can, the, the, the market shifted fundamentally shifted. And a lot of people realized then that the old way of planning or the more traditional way of planning didn't work. And they've had a pretty bumpy last 12 months. Okay. And they're looking for something new. So what we look for is frustration and curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what we're trying to give them, and this is why um, we've formed the AGLX network is actually give them the confidence that when they're working with, um, you know, AGLX, Asia Pacific, I've got um, Brian Rivera in the US, that they've actually got a group of people that they can rely on to deliver, you know, a big strategy or a, um, you know, big piece of work. Because one of the issues that we had was you would have a, an executive in a large organization and they'd say, actually, you guys are too small. You can't, you can't kind of do this thing. It's kind of too um, folksy. It's a little bit kind of... Um, you know, resource, uh, you know, lacking in the resources needed. So um, we try and say, actually, let's, let's gather these people together and then we can give these frustrated and curious people a real um, resource, a real uh, service, a real, you know, heavy weight kind of um, intervention. Because in large organisations, if you've only got one or two kind of acolytes or one or two people who say, um, I really want, to be adaptive or really want to embrace this idea of um, complexity, then that's not enough. It needs to have, you need to have a kind of a, um, uh, what would you call it? A coalition of the willing or a, you know, yeah. uh, unless you've got a particularly charismatic or forceful leader, it makes it really hard. So we need to match that. That's really what I'm saying. So that's what we try and do. So we've got to yeah. be able to match, match the client in terms of scale, um, match, you know, find someone who's curious and is interested um, find someone who's frustrated and, um, you know, disillusioned with the current condition. And, mm -hmm. and you know, luckily, um, a lot of our competitors are very good at disillusioning clients because they take that approach that we used in the past. Like I did right. it, right? Yeah. And, and you're conspiring to create something that is of limited value. If I can show you there's a better way, then actually we're starting to, to, to move the market. We're not going to shift it by educating people, we're going to shift it by doing really good work with clients. Yeah. So that's really the AGLX idea comes from this. You know, we need to do really good work with really good clients in order to shift the market. Yeah. 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 And, and that's what gets tell me the stories to their, pa their peers and right. And then, yeah. All of that. That's, that's so great. there's a, you know, there's a big movement towards um, what Dave Snowden would call um, anthro complexity globally. And it's great being part of that. Like it's been the best, you know, in my professional career, these are the best years. Um, but we need to, you know, get real momentum is, is for me is to displace current thinking is to now go and apply that same thinking to, you know, the largest organizations and governments, et cetera, in the world, which, um, you know, we're starting to do. I think it's really quite cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing that strikes me, so there's the, there's the strategy level of this, right, which, which you've talked about and you want people who are frustrated with our strategy tends to pan out uh, right now and, and they want to be curious about what they might, how they might do it differently. But then it seems to me there are quite significant cultural impl implementations, even if you've got the top leadership um, working in this way and defining their strategy in this way. Because if you've now got to reach down and into the organization, get your feelers out into these experiments, enable, empower, you know, have people do these experiments and then amplify the ones that, you know, that is an entirely different approach yeah. to managing your business, right? If that represents a completely yeah. different culture. Yeah. And so what yeah, do you no, find in um, that respect? It's, 
it's an interesting thing um, that if you ask people, um, they will say, you know, they value autonomy. Um, they value um, the ability to explore. They value the ability to kind of express themselves. But when you go and, and look at the way they make decisions, what you start to see is a lot of, um, again, what we might call dark constraints. So an interesting, um, you know, if you want to contrast New Zealand organisations and UK organisations is, and I do a lot of work uh, in the, or used to, back in the old days when you used to go to fly places. Um, in, the, in the UK, I used to go to London a lot. And what I used to see is, is, is particularly in the UK, people were constrained by permission seeking. It was a very hierarchical um, uh, structure and a hierarchical culture. Whereas in New Zealand, there's a hierarchical structure, but actually we're less, less inclined to sort of permission seek. So people wouldn't do things because they didn't have permission. And sometimes yeah. they wouldn't do things and they, you'd say, sort of get under the skin of it and they'd say, well, I didn't know who to ask. Yeah. Why don't you just go and do it? So actually, one of the heuristics I personally used to use wasn't um, uh, you know, a well-rewarded one. It was, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I used to say to the team, what's the worst that can happen? Because if the, well, the worst thing that can happen is this thing blows up and kills all of us, then actually we need to approach this decision or approach this thing a certain way. But if the yeah. worst thing that happens is the colonel calls me into his office and gives me a five-minute bollocking, actually I can take that. Yeah, I'll, I'll risk that. That's fine. Let's just have a crack. Let's do it. Yeah? And yeah. so what you start to see in a cultural sense is you have to actually acknowledge some of that stuff and allow people to kind of have the psychological safety or um, take a risk, et cetera. And that's really, really hard. Um, and a lot of the constraints or cultural constraints are quite dark, they're quite hidden, they're quite hard to see. Yeah. And this idea of, you know, mm -hmm. fear of failure or permission seeking um, is quite pervasive. So we spend a lot of time um, with organizations to kind of unpick that. Um, the, the Cognitive Edge guys have a, a product called SenseMaker um, where you can, you can start to gather the micro-narrative around issues like that and start to see real hotspots in the narrative around you know, those, types of, those types of cultural issues. But that gives you something to kind of work on or work with the leadership on. How do you relax the constraints to allow people to express themselves or even sometimes you have to impose a constraint. So sometimes when we're doing strategy, we make it an objective to do five experiments to work out customer behavior in this market. So what are five crazy things you can do to interact with customers to understand their preferences or understand how they make decisions? And that yeah. forces people now, they've got freedom of movement within the experimentation. They do what they like, basically, you know, as long as it's coherent, it's safe. Um, but you actually, you're forcing them, for want of a better word, to, to take that step. You're embracing the fact that they're going to fail. You tell them, you know, we're expecting, you know, eight out of 10 of these to fail. Come and tell us what you learned. Yeah. 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 And you actually, so you're constraining them to the action, but then allowing them freedom of movement within. Yeah. And once they start to see that, it's okay to fail and learn and come and tell your mates how you, how you made a mess of it right? Don't do this. We made a mess of it, but actually we're starting to see some positive impacts there. Then you start to, you start to build that psychological safety. You start to build that momentum. Right. But that takes time because we've had, you know, 70 years of systems dynamics that tell us to stick to the plan, stick to budget, do as you're told. Yeah. And you can yep. see that in HR practices where, you know, performance uh, evaluations are very, um, uh, uh, you know, very categorical and linear. Did you meet expectations? Did you exceed expectations, right? That's yeah. right. All of that sort of yeah. nonsense, right? Yeah. So we, when we start to really get under the skin, it's easy to kind of, kind of do an adaptive strategy. Um, but then once you start to actually uh, move and experiment and explore, then, then you find those constraints. So a lot of the techniques that we use aren't to try and solve that, that problem. I mean, it's not a problem to be solved. It's kind of a tension to be managed. Uh, a lot of the techniques that we use actually are only there to, sh to, to see where the organization is crashing into itself. Because if, if you can shine the light on constraints that have been otherwise dark or uh, you know, unacknowledged, then the leaders can do stuff about it. 
if you can't yeah. see it, then you don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, they call that a known unknown, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't know it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's 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 hard, and sometimes that takes a long time. Yeah, and and what I like there about the what the language you're using, uh, you're using this language of constraints, right? And how to and and managing tensions, right? And I I think sometimes I mean, and I'm talking to myself here, right? I, I tend to use the language of you know autonomous teams and self-organization and trust and all of these things, which I think for some people who are steeped in a paradigm of control can just feel very threatening and quite scary. Whereas if you're coming with a message of, let's just play with some constraints here and what could we do differently and how could we like work with some of these tensions, perhaps, I don't know about you, but that perhaps that's a sort of an, an easier on-ramp, you know, for the conversation. Yeah. And, and, some people genuinely aren't ready to accept the level of autonomy that adaptive strategy might give you. Mm. So there are times where you need to just pull people in a little bit and say, okay, let's, let's just um, put a bit more constraint or a little bit more, uh, a few more rules or a few more um, guidelines in place and then let you take more tentative steps. Um, and it can be quite confronting for some people to suddenly have a high level of autonomy when they've always had the sort of safety blankets of, you know, rules and the safety blanket of um, expectation and the safety blanket of, um, you know, a, a plan or a plotted course. Yeah. And, and, and obviously sometimes that's necessary. You know, if you're in a manufacturing environment, for, for, for example, you know, you can't choose to experiment with, with um, you know, some of the stuff that's, that's, you know, legitimately governed with best practice. Yeah. Yeah, you know you don't. Yep. You, the the guy making your Big Mac at McDonald's isn't experimenting with it. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's it's normally not that nice if they do. So, <laughs> so there is a you know we're not saying everything has to be uh, complex. Everything has to be a safe to fail experiment. We're saying you need to take contextually appropriate action um, based on your current conditions. Right, and that will all uh, it'll outwork itself from which your your adaptive strategy, right? Which you, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, the other term that just comes to mind of a book I read just just a few weeks ago from Gary Hamill, um, his co-author, called Humanocracy, and he has this wonderful term called the recovering bureaucrat, and uh, that comes to mind here. There's a certain a certain um, perhaps a certain process that people need to go through as sort of recovering bureaucrats, you know, to unwind some of their pattern behaviors. Um, I'm not, um, I mean, I do attack the kind of bureaucratic model from time to time, particularly when it constrains innovation or, or, you know, creates, um, you know, draconian working conditions, but I'm not a big fan of this kind of, um, so it was a bit faddish a few years ago where they kind of slashed the middle management out of the organization. We're going to become, um, I mean, holacracy is kind of the, 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 the biggest case of that. But the, the idea of, you know, we're flattening the triangle. We're going to have less reporting lines, et cetera. Actually, in a lot of organizations, a bureaucratic structure is necessary in order to um, have the requisite constraint to keep the organization, um, you know, moving in the right direction. It's the constraints that create a sense of movement. It's not a lack of constraint. And oftentimes you will abandon your kind of corporate knowledge or your core uh, um, strength to flatten the curve. If those things are frustrating to you, then actually hold back, I would say, and start to think about how do we allow managers more autonomy, not how do we get rid of managers? Because yeah. that can be really dangerous. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a point of no return for a lot of organizations. And some mm. of them actually regret that. You can, you know, bureaucracy is there for a reason. Mm. Um, you know, if you look at how that's sort of manifested itself, um, then, you know, uh, an organizational bureaucracy is effectively based on a military, um, you know, reporting lines. Okay. And it's there for a reason. You can't deploy a force or it's very difficult to deploy a force of any particular scale without a structure to support it. Yeah. So I just say be careful with that. You know, it's a very, it's kind of a go-to thing. But again, you know, um, if you're thinking about how do we maximize our potential, then you've got to do a safe-to-fail experiment. Well, yeah. I would suggest you do a safe-to-fail experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's kind of a, you know, a big silver bullet move. Doesn't often work out, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. Sort of setting fire to the whole edifice. <laughs> That's right. It's not, it's not I mean, sometimes you can do that and, you know, from that will emerge something interesting. But it's, um, you know, you've got to be prepared for chaos if you're uh, establishing the conditions for chaos. Right. Yeah. Which is a yeah. big move without understanding what the consequences might be. Yeah. 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 No, and I, and I can see how, yeah, that, that's different from your message of understanding your constraints, working with your constraints. Yeah. Understanding the tension, tensions that exist as a result of those constraints, right? That's a very, that's a, that's a sort of measured way of looking at things. Yeah. 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 Um, so we, we kind of, I mean, we use Kinevin for that. You know, how do you take contextually appropriate action? Um, but oftentimes with clients, you know, if you've got a, if they have never heard of Kinevin, we say to them, well, you know, let's take a, a simplified kind of idea here. Is this something where we just need to execute? I.e., we've got processes, um, procedures, policies, and the, and the people and the skills needed to just go and do it, right? We'll just go and do it, right? There's no, you know, no point in sort of laboring that idea. Is this something where we have expertise or we could find expertise or we could find data or we've got some analysis that might work it out? Well, if that's the case, then do that. But we're not abandoning those things, not saying they're bad or wrong. Is this somewhere we need to explore or we could explore or we're uncertain about what the outcome might be or we could be surprised by the um, unintended consequences? Well, mm. if that's the case, then let's take a more um, uh, you know, complexity-based approach of you know, test and learn or safe-to-fail experimentation or you know, call it what you like. So it's con- context really matters. Yep. And it's, it's how you manage the constraints that allows people to operate authentically uh, under different contexts. Yeah. 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 No, that so makes if everything's an ISO standard, then you're constraining yourselves effectively to the ordered domains. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. And then, and then you're, Which that, is that's great go. in a linear system, but was unlikely to survive change. Right. Yeah. So we're um, creating an organization. Um, and what I, 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 I call the, um, the, the stages detect, respond, exploit. So detect is about, you know, how do we detect opportunities uh, to move or improve or de-risk or, you know, how can, you know, where, where might we move effectively? And that's where we need to start scanning quite broadly. That's where we need to start bringing, you know, for me, that's around cognitive diversity. I want, um, you know, you and the people around you to think differently about the same situation. Yeah. And that, you know, it turns out people with different cultural backgrounds and people with different um, worldviews uh, actually let you scan more broadly. Yeah. yeah. People don't like doing that, but that's, you know, if there's no one arguing with you, you're in a dangerous place in that sense. If there's yeah. no one postulating an alternative that's, that's confronting your worldview, then you're in a dangerous place. Yeah. Okay, so you've got to let go the need to be right or wrong. Yeah. Okay, we're exploring detection. And then you say the res- respond is where you say contextually appropriate response. What's the worst that can happen? Oh, we could all get blown up, right? Well, let's respond in a way that's very, um, you know, um, planned and clinical and, and de-risk, et cetera. You know, or we could respond in a way where we just try something, see what happens, right? But having a, a shared understanding of response is really important because you don't want an organization where some of the people are expecting to go into a business case and other people are expecting to go and experiment. Because yeah. again, it's crashing into itself, right? And then you get stuck in the confused domain where nothing happens because you're still arguing about what to do. Okay. So then once we've responded and we've got some feedback, then actually the intent is to move to exploit. I don't mean, you know, exploit in a negative sense. I mean, exploit opportunities to create value. And that's where you start to say, oh, we've tried all these things. And these three things seem to be the most um, likely to really move the needle in terms of our shared understanding of success. So let's really put some effort into these things. And what we're doing is we're shifting across to the audit domains and we're saying, right, we've built up some experience through interaction with the market. We're starting to build up some data. We're starting to get a team around this thing. Okay. And then the exploitation phase is where you actually go out and apply resources, you know, make some money, change the world, this sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. So it's how you filter around each one of those um, in a tech respond export. You can't respond to everything. You'll run out of energy. So you have to filter there. And for me, you know, the filter should be um, 
what's coherent, i.e. likely or we have sufficient evidence that will move us in the right direction, and then how much resource can we sustain for experimentation. If the answer is zero, then you've just killed your ability to innovate. If the answer is 100%, then you've really got no idea what you're doing and we're starting from scratch, right? So somewhere in the middle. And we have to make a pragmatic call on that. Some organizations don't have the resources, others do. So then, then we, we filter again from the response to exploit. We say, I want to exploit or put real effort into the things that are more likely to make big jumps in strategic sense, right? We can't do 100 things. Yeah. We can't do 100 things well. We can do five things well. We can do three things well. Let's, what are those three things? You know, and then we're really going to lean into that. Every time we interact gives us a new detection mechanism. We're continuously scanning, continuously um, taking contextually appropriate action, and then continuously testing our assumptions around the things that we're currently doing. So now yeah. strategy, again, it's about movement. Yeah. And that's yeah. the tempo of the business is how fast you can cycle through that. Yeah, yeah. Go too fast, you run out of energy, you'll burn people out. Go too slow, your competitors will overtake you. The tempo has to match the business. Tempo is not about faster. It's about the appropriate tempo to match the strategic conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like a dance. <laughs> it's like you, you got to go. be in like time with your partners right? or partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wonderful. Wow, thank you. I felt like I've had a very comprehensive tour of your worldview. <laughs> Right? Yeah, and uh, and how you're applying Clexi thinking and Kinevin. Um Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed it. Is, is there anything I've I, we've missed? Is there anything you would have wanted to share that we haven't really touched on? Um, no, not really. I guess for me, uh, in a more meta sense, the work that we're doing here um, is you know, it really is the face of a changing paradigm. So we're moving from the uh, management practices that got us through the sort of industrial revolution and the, um, you know, massive swing towards digital technology. Um, we now have a world where, you know, we have nonlinear relationship between cause and effect. Small things can have massive effects. The Suez uh, Canal, uh, both right. the Suez Canal is a good example of that. Um, and because we're so tightly coupled now, then we really have to start to think about our business as part of a network instead of as part of a machine. This idea of systems thinking is you know, starting to become really redundant. We're very interconnected in a way that we just can't see. So um, the work that um, you know, Dave Snowden and the Cognitive Edge guys uh, have done in the theoretical sense there, you know, we're really starting to, uh, as, a, as a network of organizations, apply that. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very pragmatic way. And I think that what we're doing is we are at the forefront of a global shift. And I say we, it's like you're included, you know, everybody, our clients are part of that as well because they're embracing a new way of thinking. Um, and I guess the main point there is actually we, we haven't got it right. This will evolve and change. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not here to offer a silver bullet. This isn't something that, um, you know, I can, I can say, you know, we've nailed it. Um, we're all still learning and growing. These are early days in a new paradigm. So, you know, I would say to anyone who's thinking about participating in this, you know, just just connect with people who are working in this space, um, you know, learn and start to apply these, these ideas because these ideas aren't just, you know, they don't just make good commercial sense. They make good social sense. If we can apply these same ideas to, you know, our cities and our societies and our social problems, then we can actually move the needle on those as well. Yeah. No, wonderfully yeah. put, you know, <laughs> rousing. Yeah. There you go. Cool to sort of usher in this new paradigm, right? It's, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and, and from my perspective, a more humanistic, you know, this, 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 this puts the, the human, the human stories, human ingenuity, uh, at the heart of this new paradigm, right? And, um, a absolutely true. Um, and, 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 and the I metaphors see... that we're using, right? We're shifting from, we're, we're sort of, we're natural agents in an ecosystem now. We're not resources in a in a facility, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a modern manifestation of that is people, and you see it a lot, um, you know, privileging an algorithm over a human decision. Yeah. And that, you know, it's sort of dehumanizing. It's taking yeah. that same mechanistic view, but in a digital world. So um, you know, we really try and, you know, I'm not, it's not to say ignore algorithms, they're very, very useful, but actually it's, 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 you know, humans and 
uh, machines or humans and AI, not one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Because again, that's part of that complex interaction. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Well, for people who cool. like uh, the sound of uh, you know your your approach to, to strategy and organizational development, development is AGLX, and you know where's the best place to find you? AGLX.com. There you go. You've got the URL. <laughs> <Nice and easy. laughs> Excellent. Uh, right. Well, we'll we'll put a link to that. Uh, we'll also put a link to to the book. Um, you know, if, if which you know, Steve's Steve's chapter is wonderful. Um, but uh, yeah, there are a, a bunch of others as well, of other pioneers in this new paradigm, applying these ideas in different contexts. Um, that's in the Kinefin at 21 book. So yeah, we'll put those links in the description. And uh, yeah, thanks again for sharing your morning with us uh, from, from all the way much. down Appreciate under. It. That's so right. yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.